Good afternoon, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, my name is Josh Baumgartner, Vice President of Public Policy at the Roanoke Regional Chamber. This is our third installment of the Policy and Pints podcast. Uh, we're here at the Pine Room at the Hotel Roanoke, leading up to the Small Business Awards tonight, our 30th annual. So thanks, thanks everyone, for, for coming out and listening. Um, I'm here with Cowan Perry. We've got two attorneys with us, Jim Cowan, Chairman, and Eric Chapman. Gentlemen, thanks for coming out. So tell me a little bit about your firm and, and yourselves and before we get started. Sure, appreciate that. Um, our firm is a nine-lawyer management side, uh, labor and employment, corporate, uh, basically anything a business might need in the way of business services, whether that's tax advice, commercial litigation, to file a trademark, to uh, you know, get some labor and employment counsel on a matter, such as the FLSA regs we're talking about today. Uh, and we have offices in uh, Roanoke and Blacksburg, Virginia, but we have folks licensed in all the surrounding states in West Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and West Virginia as well. Okay. Eric? Not much to add to that. <laughs> I'm a Southwest Virginia native, practice out of our Blacksburg office, although I spend a few days up here in Roanoke, and I'm um, happy to answer any of the listeners' questions if they want to call. And sometimes Jim will be out on trial or be out doing training, but uh, mm -hmm. I'm happy to talk with you. Okay. Well, gentlemen, thanks for coming out. Um, on behalf of the Roanoke Regional Chamber, really appreciate your time today. So, as I mentioned, this is our third installment just on the Department of Labor overtime rule uh, because it is a uh, monstrosity of a regulation. I'd say probably the biggest since the Affordable Care Act on, on businesses. So kind of walk me through how we got here on the background. Um, and we've, we've talked about that quite a bit, but something this big, I think it's important to drive that home, how we, how we got to this point. Sure. I, I think a lot of the, the change in this regulation arose out of the fact that they hadn't changed it in such a long time. And so over time, the, the original or the current threshold, which is just under 24000 a year, uh, that was one half of the requirement to be a salaried exempt employer employee, hadn't changed in many, many years. It wasn't indexed to inflation. Uh, the Department of Labor didn't increase it periodically over the years. And there was a feeling that uh, that over time with inflation and where we are in today's world that, that folks making, you know, 24 to 30 some thousand dollars a year uh, really weren't the type of employees that should be exempt from overtime and that in a lot of businesses, particularly, you know, during the downturn as things come back that those folks were working a lot of overtime hours. Uh, and part of the idea was to, to say we want to get this back uh, up to a level where these are our more senior management employees, supervisory employees, and, and those sorts of things. Uh, there was a great deal of debate about where that number ought to be. Right. Uh, the ultimate number we got to at, at 47, 476 per year, almost 48,000, uh, you know, may not be a real high wage for an exempt or a managerial employee in, in New York or Boston, uh, but in Southwest Virginia where we are and in other parts of the country, uh, that's a pretty significant salary. And so there was a lot of debate about whether that should be indexed by area, but, but, but we are where we are with that. Right. So we're looking at an almost a 100% increase, correct? From correct. what it was, uh, correct. 23 to you know, 47,000 range. So businesses, when they want to come into compliance, obviously they're going to need to by December 1st. What, uh, what advice are you giving them? What kind of strategies are you advising to sure. put in place? We've spent a great deal of time the last couple of months mm -hmm. uh, helping folks both do a self-audit of what they're doing and talk about, well, how do we do this? Because there's the black and white of I, anybody that's below that after, no, after December 1st, may become eligible for overtime, but do how do we prepare for that? So mm -hmm. what most employers do, and we're recommending, you know, let's get a list of the jobs that are sort of in the range, right? Uh, where classifications you have people making less than $50,000. Maybe anybody that you're treating as a salaried exempt employee right now that's not eligible for overtime. And let's maybe look at other people that are a little bit above that and see what that group looks like. And then I think the first part 
And one of the things that may be a little different is we're telling everybody also, let's step back because a lot of folks are focused so much on this $48,000 threshold that they're not looking at the duties. And the Department of Labor has made very clear that this salaried exempt test, one part is meeting the salary threshold, being at or above it, but the other side is you have to qualify by what work the employee does for one of the white collar exemptions. And, and the threshold has been so low and it hasn't had a lot of attention that we're seeing a lot of employers where they bring us a job, uh, maybe an employee making in the mid upper 30s, 40,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And we say, well, gosh, before we have this conversation about do we increase their salary, do we, do we take them to hourly with overtime, do we leave them as a salary non-exempt who can earn overtime, let's look at what their duties are because what we find is that some of those employees aren't eligible even if you increase their salary because they're not doing a job that meets one of those white-collar exemptions. We want to look at that. Then the next thing we tend to do once we get past that is say, right, how much overtime is involved in this particular job? What's the budgetary impact of moving some of these people up? If it's a $2,000 bump, that might be an easy decision. If the employee was going to get a $2,500 raise in January anyway with the annual increase, do we move that up to December 1st? Say, that's a pretty easy solution. But as that gap gets bigger in pay between somebody who right now maybe is making in the low 30s and 48, that may not be as easy a decision. So we look at that. Mm-hmm. I think you also have to step back and say, do we change some of these roles? Do we look organizationally and say, mm-hmm. what made sense in an organizational structure for number of supervisors and managers and how we staffed a particular officer division, does that still make the most sense if we have to comply with these regs? Um, and then you've got to obviously figure out what those recommendations are going to be. Who's going to move up? Do you, do you want to have salaried non-exempt roles? Uh, we have some employers saying, you know, if they're below that, we're going to transition them to hourly with overtime because we think we're more likely to stay compliant. If I create this gray area where I give you a salary of 40000 a year, but you're overtime eligible, that's okay under mm-hmm. the statute, except what? Now I've got to comply with the record-keeping regs for a non-exempt employee. So are they right. going to punch a time clock? Are they going to fill out a time card? Is there an exception report? How am I going to keep records so that the Department of Labor comes back and track that overtime? And is there a more risk that I don't do that properly or that I have unreported overtime being worked if I give someone a salary that actually doesn't meet the, uh, the exemption. Yeah. And to put a note on that, too, one of the things you run into when you're looking at, at transitioning some of these previously exempt employees, uh, maybe that, as Jim said, do I have overtime work being performed that's not uh, being recorded, which can put you in a you know, record-keeping violation and also cause you to have the staff reclassified. Well, when you take some of these sour lead employees down to um, uh, if they're working hourly now or they're no longer exempt, sometimes that's a morale issue for them. A lot of people like to, you know, where does a badge of honor that I get the job done and that's why I'm a salaried employee. So, you know, Eric or Josh or whoever it is may be at home working on their mobile device at home or they may take right. the work home to do the presentation right. overnight. But you have to remember that that is still compensable work. And the standard mm-hmm. under the FLSA is suffered or permitted to perform the work. So I, and I would tell that, that I think that's a big piece of, that is not getting as much attention as it should. The Department of Labor has made very clear, and in the more recent audits we've had, we've seen them do this. When they come in and talk to an employee that, that is a salaried, non-exempt employee, and they're doing an audit about whether you're complying, they start asking them questions like, um, are you expected to respond to emails outside of your regular work hours? Absolutely. Right? <laughs> are you expected to you know, answer your cell phone? Does the company provide a cell phone? Mm-hmm. Do you get text messages? Are you ever asked out of work hours to take a look at something to be prepared for a meeting or a call in the morning. 
Well, the DOL has said if you're below this 48,000 threshold and you're still a salaried employee, that's all compensable work time mm -hmm. and the employee's entitled to be paid. Well, how are, how are you going to deal with that as an employer? So one of the things we're spending a bunch of time doing is writing policies because mm -hmm. you've got to decide either this is an employee that I need that level of responsibility off hours and I'm willing to pay for it, mm -hmm. or I'm willing to make some adjustments to their role. Their duty. i got to address it somehow, or I better figure out how I'm going to track and capture that time because the Department of Labor has made very clear when they come in, if answer, Eric answers all those questions yes, they're going to say, oh, employer, what record do you have? Do you keep track of all that? Well, who's keeping track of that? And most no employers one. aren't. And their view is if the employer doesn't keep the proper records of the hours <laughs> worked, that the best evidence of what they worked is what? I'll say, well, Eric, about how many hours a week do you think you spend doing that? So oh, well, about, about 55 hours. <laughs> and, the, and the employee well, statement is going to be the best evidence. But, but, and, and technology is not your friend here. It, it's really not because the employee can pull out their cell phone and say, look at all, look these, all these text hours. messages I sent to Jim. You know, right. I go through the sent messages and see how many of them are after 5 o'clock. Wow. Well, that's a pretty good evidence. I look at the phone and how many calls did they take? Mm -hmm. and. and you don't think that's a, a big deal until the employee gives the answer that says, well, you know, it's probably a couple hours a week. Well, three hours a week times 50 hours times two years times how many employees are in that bucket and not at their $40,000 a year salary that may translate to X, but at one and a half times that. So right. I may have an employee that's eligible for overtime at 50 bucks an hour. Mm -hmm. Well, that's $150 a week if their answer is three hours and I get that for two to three years of back pay per employee. Right. It's a huge number. Yeah. And you've touched on it a little bit. Um, there's there's certainly a lot of misconceptions out there. Sure. Um, because it's such a complicated rule. Um, whether it's the email stuff, whether it's travel time, you know, the yep. classifications. If if I own Josh's bike shop and I yep. had an employee in that range and in one week they worked uh, 45 hours, so I want to put them down to 35 in that yep. two-week span to, to even it out. Is that okay or is that not okay? It, it's not, it, and it's actually probably one of the most common violations when the wage hour folks come in and audit an employer that they find is if, if an employee is paid, for example, every two weeks, a lot of employers are paying overtime only when they go above 80 in the two weeks. And for a salaried exempt employee that's above either the current threshold or in December, the new $48,000 threshold, as long as you pay them a fixed salary, if their work week fluctuates, not a big deal. You can do comp time as you want to do it. But now we're going to have this whole group of people that you can't do that with. It has to be in the same work week. And that's an it's a seven-day period that the employer picks. And you can't monkey with it, right, to, to get some advantage of it, that if this week I work over, I move it, right? You, you have to pick one. You can change it, but you have to have some intention to keep it for a time period. And, and that becomes a much bigger deal now that we have additional employees that are falling into that bucket. And we've seen employers, particularly on the manufacturing or work environments where they have uh, you know, sort of peak work time, say, gosh, if I'm going to have this big group of fairly well-compensated people making thirty-five dollars to $50,000 a year that I've got, or $48,000 I've got to pay overtime, what work week actually makes sense for my business? Does it make more sense for my work week to start at midnight on Friday night mm -hmm. so that if we work over the weekend, I can make a business decision Monday, we worked an extra day, do I want to incur overtime and do I have it in my overtime budget? Or do I say... On Thursday, when it's slow, let everybody have a half day off so that within a single work week, I can still manage that, uh, that workflow a little bit. Right. Because you have that tool, but you can't, as you said, you can't bounce it over multiple weeks or have a comp time bank for anybody making under 48000 a year. Now, there are slightly different rules for, for public sector employers. Right. They have a little bit of flexibility. They have a specific set of regulations that deal with comp time. But in the private sector, uh, you, you can't do that. Right. 
And just to clear up, you, you can't just change your work week, week to week. You can't pick one and set it. You can pick one that works for you going forward, forward. but you can't, you can't, change you can't manipulate it to reduce your overtime bill. <laughs> right. Yeah. And this week our work week is. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So, and again, another thing folks are going to have to think about, you know, strategy just can't be to get them to 48000 because in a couple of years you're going to have to potentially look well, at bump it again. Bump it again and right? this, so, this is a, uh, and I think that's a really great, point because one of the things remember to do this this wasn't a change in the statute the Department of Labor did this by regulation and what they looked at in determining what was an appropriate threshold it was set at the 40th percentile of full-time salaried workers in the south which is the lowest you know pay rate uh, part of the country but I will interrupt they did they did use DC Northern Virginia <laughs> they no, used no, some no, very no. highly complicated regions but 40 per, 40th percentile of, <laughs> of, of, of full-time salary employees in the right. south and then what they're saying is you're right there's going to be every three mm -hmm. years it'll be adjusted based on that same measure and one of the, I think one of the most fascinating if you're into statistics go and, and google this and, and read up on it is there are some prognosticators and, and some of the people that are sort of think this was a really bad idea to take, peg it to this. We're saying, now let's think about this for just a moment. Right now, you can pay an employee 25000 to 38000 make them a salaried full-time employee, and they're exempt from overtime. Under the new reg, everyone in the country is going to go to 48000 mm -hmm. Are there a lot of employees who are no longer exempt who may get converted to hourly employees? Because some employers are saying, I don't want to play in this gray space. Right. I'm going to have salaried exempt, and I'm going to have hourly people that earn overtime. What is, what is that full-time salaried snapshot going to look like? Is it going to change? Number one, are we going to have some push upstream in full-time salaried roles to meet the new threshold? Probably. Mm -hmm. But are we also going to have people at the lower end most disproportionately being moved to hourly? If I've got someone making 30000 a year, I'm certainly not going to move them to forty-eight, right. but I might make them an hourly employee. Mm -hmm. So if millions of people that right now get a salary of Twenty-five to thirty-five thousand a year become hourly employees. They don't fit in this test anymore. Okay. What does that do to the average wage? And so there's a lot of people saying that that first bump mm -hmm. may actually exceed inflation significantly because of how they decided to measure it, which wow. is fun for your statistical box out there, <laughs> and and probably gibberish for everyone else. <laughs> well, no, but an important point. Um, yeah. So don't. That, and we tell folks, yeah, if they're if you think you're just going to bump them to get them above it. We call it the escalator effect, meaning every three years, are you going to have to give them a raise, even if it's not in your budget, even if their performance didn't rate it, because mm -hmm. they're on the escalator going up with inflation, right. and you've got to keep them up there every couple of years, mm -hmm. whether the performance rates it or not. It's it a great match. question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about uh, how contract employees um, play into, into sure. this rule. It, 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 they play in a really interesting way because before these regs went out, one of the things that's happened over the last few years, and the DOL has also released some guidance on is they are taking a much stricter look at who is truly an independent contractor and who's an employee, how much control is being exerted. Do they really have an opportunity to earn profit and loss based on their efforts? Mm -hmm. How long are they working for you? And one of the things they've said with the adoption of these regs is, we're going to continue to look at that closely mm -hmm. because one of the things they don't want is employers taking somebody that's under 48 right. saying, well, we know how to fix this. Yes. Right. We'll just make Josh mm -hmm. a, an independent contractor. We'll pay him on a 1099. We'll have a little independent contractor agreement. We'll keep paying him $38,000 a year. Year, and we'll just, you know, yeah. nod, wink, call them a contractor. Mm -hmm. That's not going to work. Okay. So they will be keeping a close eye on, on that. The, well, they already are. The, they yeah, are. The, the current, it's get worse. when they audit you now currently, one of the things they do in a wage hour audit is want to know every individual that you're issuing a 1099 to that's not a corporation. And the idea is those are probably those consultants. 
And if you have a short-term project, great, they can look at that. Sure. But if they see people that are an individual in a 1099 making $40,000 a year, and, they, and they're on their last year making $40,000 a year, and they're three years ago making $40,000 a year, it's not too hard for them to figure out, gosh, I wonder if this person is really working for this company exclusively. And they'll come in and say, what does this person do? Let me see their contract. Are they allowed to work for others? Do they work full time? How long do they work for you? And all of a sudden, they're looking at an issue that, that you may not be prepared to give a good answer to. And we talk a lot about this, this 48 range. Um, and it's not uh, too common in, our, in this part of, of the state, but it certainly is the northern part. There's a highly compensated piece to this as well that's been increased, right? There is. I don't see a lot of use of that. The okay. highly compensated under the old test was 100 grand a year, and they've moved it up to 134. And what that does is give you an easier test to meet the duties part. And that's the white collar exemption. Are you a managerial employee? Are you supervising two or more employees? Are you an administrative. administrative person with significant judgment and discretion? I'm the right. VP of marketing for a company, for mm -hmm. example. Under the highly compensated test, if you're above 134,000, they say, you know what? We're not as worried about whether you're getting treated fairly. Mm -hmm. If you're doing some exempt duties, even if it's not your primary duty, you're not spending the majority of your time, as long as you're doing some, you're good. And, and, and I would tell you out here, really the only place I see that coming up much is some family-owned businesses where they have somebody who's working in the family business. They're paid a lot because that's how they're paying out right. some of the revenue of the business. But you're right. In some higher dollar markets, you have technicians. You might have, and in the IT world, some people that, uh, that are in that salary range who don't fit in one of the other tests for exempt status based on what work they do. They may be a really, really talented technician in Silicon Valley working at a lab, you know, analyzing data, running stuff through a, through a lab. That's a really valuable technician. I may pay them above that rate in that market, and I have a much easier time of getting them exempt status than I would if they're below that. But we don't see a lot of use of it around right. here, to be frank. Okay. Talk a little bit about the, um, you know, the 501c6 status for nonprofits. There has to be some leniencies in place for them. Well, you know, this is one of the, I think, also sort of a misconception. I think there are some nonprofits that think because they're a nonprofit, they're not covered. Mm -hmm. The FLSA rules, including this increase in the salary basis, do not have a general exemption for nonprofits. Um, now, coverage is a little bit different. So the, the Fair Labor Standards Act, the, the, the statute that we're talking about, has, has two different types of, of coverage. One is what's called enterprise coverage, meaning the business is big enough, it's engaged in interstate commerce, it's out there doing business in the world. Mm -hmm. And some nonprofits meet that right. because they also do stuff that has a business purpose. They run a gift shop, they provide uh, some service, they, they do something to generate revenue for the nonprofit. Okay. Right, I may be a uh, you know there's lots of a gift shop at a at a museum is a sort of a classic easy example, and that may not get them in a bigger nonprofit. They may have enough of those that they're they're generating half a million a year of revenue, and a lot of them think, well, we're not covered. We don't do that much. We're we're smaller than that. We don't need to worry about this. The problem with that is there's there's some um, in, entities, even though they're nonprofits, that are automatically covered, like hospitals, schools, uh, medical and nursing care facilities, right. even if they're a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. The part that trips up the nonprofits the most is what's called the individual coverage aspect. So the, the statute says even if the company may not be covered so that every employee is covered, an individual employee can still be covered if they're engaged in what's called interstate commerce or the production of any good or service that's put out into interstate commerce. And it, it doesn't take much to do that. If they're making calls Make across calls, state right. lines, they're using vendors and suppliers in other states, they're shipping materials back and forth, they're raising money. 
outside of one state. It doesn't take a lot. That, and those things, it doesn't matter if they're for the charitable purpose of the nonprofit or if they're for a business purpose. So what we tend to see is we can have this conversation about whether the whole nonprofit is covered. And somebody say, oh, well, we're not. We're okay. Well, the problem is generally that salaried employee making between, you know, thirty and 45000 a year, they're doing something that touches. It's in today's world. They're using cloud-based computer services. Right. They're using a, a billing agency. They're, they're, they're soliciting money in multiple states. They're doing something. They're doing an email campaign that goes to lots of people. They're doing enough that touches on that, that that employee probably is still covered. And so I think nonprofits have to be really careful, and, and it's hard for them. Obviously, they have very constrained budgets of how do you, how do you manage that. So there's been a coalition of states, I think it's 21, a coalition of business groups um, that have, have filed lawsuits. Yep. Uh, there's a bill that was just passed in the House last week to delay sure. this, push it back to summer of 2017. Right. I'm sure you've got a lot of businesses out there saying, okay, this is going to pass. There's a lot of business-friendly folks in, in Congress right now. You've got a Republican majority. We're, we're safe. What do you say to them? I wouldn't count on that. <laughs> and, and, and I think people have a false sense that that might happen because over the last few years, uh, the administration has been very active with executive orders and, and by regulation trying to do some things that they probably couldn't get passed through a Republican Congress. And some of those have gotten stayed by the courts. So people have some reason to think, well, why would this one be different? Well, the House passed it, but then they went on recess. The Senate doesn't even come back till November 14. The law goes into effect December 1. Most people tell you they're not sure the Senate will even take it up and take any action before then. We obviously have an election in the mix here as well. And so a lot going on there. The administration has already said, we don't support this. Um, I don't know if they've come out and said directly they'll veto, but they'll say, we don't think this is good. We think the regulations are appropriate. Uh, in no way is there a veto-proof majority on, on this Certainly. bill. On the litigation side, that's a bit more of a wild card, but I will tell you, most of the people that analyze and look at these things uh, and most of the sort of commentators on that have said they don't think any of these lawsuits have a very strong chance of, of affecting a nationwide stay of the implementation of, of this new salary threshold. Some of them might have an impact in a particular state. Most of them are, and, and a lot of them may have more likely challenging things like this automatic escalator every three years. Right. And if you look at the legal scholars, they say, yeah, that's a little questionable how they did that. But even most of those legal scholars say they're not sure that there's a very good chance of these cases striking down this whole regulation. The, the whole idea is, did they go through the process, and does, do they have authority to do this on a regulatory basis? They took their time to do this. They had a public comment period, lots of um, organizations and business chambers. Uh, we participated in some of those efforts saying, we, we think maybe some changes are necessary, but wow, going from 24 to 48 in the Southwest and Southwest Virginia, too much, too fast. Let's talk about how we do this, what that threshold is. Um, so I, I, our, our advice to our clients is, you know, maybe there's a Hail Mary pass chance of something changing it. There always is until you go effective. But we think it's a pretty, pretty low chance. And we're telling clients, be, be prepared. If you're betting on that, you're making a very, very poor bet. And, and if you want to make that bet, I'd like to make a side bet with you for money. Because <laughs> I, I feel that, I, I feel like it's going to be a pretty good, a pretty good deal for me. If they make that bet, they probably are making a side bet with <laughs> For money down the road, or someone, an attorney somewhere. Well, you know, that's a great point, Eric. That's Actually, that they could just commit to use us when they get in trouble yes, for not trouble. being compliant on December one, one, and that would probably give us the same return as the bad. I, I'm kind of liking this plan. And so, your advice <laughs> on that, and the takeaway is: be ready for December first, 2016. For someone listening now, or that will listen to this podcast maybe in the next couple of weeks or, or the next month, that hasn't quite prepared, what would be your one piece of advice to them? 
your immediate piece of advice to that, that business? I, I think sit down and go through that process of figuring out what jobs are affected, mm-hmm. and, and particularly the ones that work any material overtime. Because remember, there, there is a no harm, no foul aspect to this rule, right? If I do nothing to prepare, but none of my employees ever work 40 hours a week even, they, you know, everybody cuts out early on Friday, I don't really work in the overtime, or I've got the employees that are affected that really are in a group that really do work a fixed schedule, my exposure is much less do I have a timekeeping issue that I'm not properly recording and tracking their time? Probably. Mm-hmm. Is that the end of the world? Probably not. If I've got jobs where people are working a lot of overtime, though, that's a whole different can of worms. And so I think you've got to figure out what, which of those buckets you're in. Mm-hmm. Is this a crisis for you, or is this something that you've got to figure out, but it's not an immediate crisis? And then the other is you've got a pretty short time to deal with it. How are you going to communicate this to your employees? Right. I think that can be a really big issue. And you know, one of the things that we're telling folks and I think people sort of thought about what they might do budgetarily and, and figured out what they might do. But are you communicating that just to that affected individual or those three people in your company or 30 people in your company? Because if Eric and I do the same job and all of a sudden Jim, Jim I'm, makes more I'm still exempt because mm-hmm. I've been at the company longer and Eric's not. Well, Eric now knows that I'm paid over $48,000 a year, number one, if, if he doesn't yeah. know that already. And now all of a sudden, if I don't make a lot over it, and Eric's only been there a couple years and he makes five or 10,000 less than me, if he's working a fair amount of overtime, I, I might make pretty, more than you. I might be unhappy about right, that. Absolutely. Because his overtime rate at 60 bucks an hour, mm-hmm. wow, well, this doesn't work. So we come in on Saturday, and, and Eric makes $600 and I make nothing. Yeah. And so you've got to think about those kind of <laughs> issues. <laughs> and I'm not sure a lot of employers, I think many have been really good and proactive because this has been getting visibility through things like like what you're doing right um but i think there's a lot of companies that still when we talk to them are, are surprised and Absolutely really not. aren't prepared right I, I would add one footnote to that just add on to what jim said if, if you're out there listening you haven't done something about this yet uh, maybe you're going to go talk to an attorney you're going to have an audit you're going to figure out what jobs uh, really put some time into your job descriptions because it's very difficult for an attorney um to look at a job description that says oh gee where is this this person makes forty six thousand a year they manage stuff and and do this systems and look at that admin and there's a very vague descriptions or you get really dense descriptions of policies and procedures IS 9705421 and you're just sitting there going you know I really don't know what this person does it's very hard for me to tell you if if they actually meet the duties test Um, and 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 frankly that helps the attorney out a lot because then we can give you a better answer and and the other thing I would echo with that is I don't think your first step to to be quite honest I mean if you want your first step to be picking up the phone and and calling a labor and employment attorney we're We're okay okay with that that. (laughs) but but I think if you're a pragmatic business owner my first step would be actually to go on the internet it's pretty pretty good these days and there the the Department of Labor regulations are really hard to, to get through if you don't do that often but they've been very good about putting out fact sheets about what applies. So, for example, if you Google uh, FLSA fact sheet uh, exemptions, you'll find ones, and you can look up by professional exemption, by managerial, by executive. They have a little fact sheet for each of those of, okay, what does this person have to do, how much of their time has to be on it, and and sort of a front and back one page, sort of quick and dirty. Mm -hmm. Now, does that answer every question? Probably not, but I would tell you for seven out of ten of your jobs, it probably is going to answer your question. We tell people, go through that, and you're going to come up with a couple of them that you kind of scratch your head and go, yeah, I'm pretty good with everybody else, but I don't know what to do with Steve. Mm -hmm. What do I do with Steve? Well, that's a much more productive use of somebody's time to say, here's where I am. Does that look okay generally? Now, let's talk about these three people that I'm really struggling with. They, they do alpha hour work. I need them to answer their email. So what do I do? Do I adjust their work week? 
do I build in some cushion for that? How am I going to track it? Because that's where really where the rubber hits the road is, is those situations. And our, our view is let us help you on that focus part where there's real value in sitting down and, and getting an answer that works for you mm-hmm. and for how your business works. Perfect. Well, gentlemen, we could, we could sit here and spend two hours <laughs> just talking about email and travel time and some of the complexities Ooh. with that. Um, but at this point, I mean, we've got some folks here. Um, I think we'll go ahead and wrap up. They may have some questions uh, for you guys. I know you got a little bit of, a little bit of a pint left <laughs> to drink on. So with that, we're going to wrap it up. I want to thank uh, the Pine Room for hosting us, Eddie Communications for getting us set up, and, and Cal and Perry for, for joining us and giving us your uh, expertise on this matter. Thank you. Thank really you appreciate the opportunity to join you.